Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's installment of the Dead Pundit Society. Joining me on the program is Heidi Matthews. She's a legal scholar at Osgood Hall Law School in Toronto, Ontario. And I brought her on the program to talk about the recent waves of allegations of sexual assault that have been brought against politicians, CEOs, celebrities, and other public figures. Heidi's concern is that this movement that started kind of catalyzed in the hashtag MeToo phenomenon last month will ultimately undermine the agency of women by forcing them into legal and social subject positions of passive victimhood when it comes to matters of sex and flirtation. Heidi also makes a really interesting case that this liberal sex panic feeds into the phenomenon of neoliberal feminism, which focuses on individual and moral solutions to what are in actuality the collective and social problems of power and material inequality under capitalism. So it's not as though we are uh, you know, going easy on uh, people who have been accused of sexual assault. Sexual assault is disgusting. Sexual harassment, particularly by bosses, is atrocious. But these are problems of power and social and material and wealth inequalities that cannot be addressed by woke neoliberal feminism and require a more thoroughgoing socialist analysis if we are to get to the bottom of them. So there's a little preview of our argument. There's going to be a B-side to this episode. It's going to be released later this weekend, so all of my patrons should be looking out for that. If you're not a patron and you would like access to that B-side along with my entire back catalog, head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe for $5 a month. You're not going to want to miss that. Uh, a lot of good stuff there. I've got uh, extended footage and bonus content with the likes of Leo Panich, Steve Marr, Adam Hilton, uh, all types of people uh, recently for my Labor in the Capitalist State series. Also, the Anti-Essentialism series uh, is still one of the best things uh, that I've done. I'm really proud of it. You're not going to want to miss that, folks, with the luminaries such as Adolf Reed, Vivek Chibber, Nevedita Majumdar, and all the rest of them. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and join the Dead Pundit Society for only $5 a month. You're going to get a lot out of it. Head over to Twitter. If you are on Twitter, I would suggest that you're not. Uh, And if you are, you should log off immediately. But if you are, you can find me at Dead Pundits. Find me on Facebook by searching for the Dead Pundit Society. Like the page, follow it, and get all kinds of updates about upcoming episodes. All right, now without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Heidi Matthews. Welcome back to the Dead Pundit Society, everyone. Joining me this week is Heidi Matthews. Heidi is an assistant professor at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto, Ontario. She's joining me this week to talk about the celebrity sexual harassment and uh, sex panic uh, phenomenon. Heidi, how are you doing today? I'm great, Adam. Thanks for having me. So a lot of topics to discuss. I first discovered you uh, in the, I saw a flyer for an event that you were speaking at in, uh, in, in uh, Ontario, Canada, rather. And so you're sort of on tour right now to talk about the sex panic and celebrity sexual violence. You're currently in London giving a series of talks and lectures there about this topic and others. Um, how did you take this up and what's that experience been like, uh, traveling the world to talk about, uh, sex panic and the celebrity, uh, wave of sexual violence? <laughs> uh, so it's, 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 <laughs> you're on tour. Uh, yeah, I'm a tour with sex, but less drugs than rock and roll, I guess. Um, I was going to say, how's the green room? Do you have like a massive list, like uh, of, of demands that you need for your green room? Like, like a. <laughs> Peanut M&Ms without like the green ones like taken out or whatever, anything nuts like that? Well, you know, I'm quickly acquiring the need for a security escort. Um, but other than that, things are... <laughs> Any other diva-like <laughs> qualities? Like I've heard things about Mariah Carey and Madonna like throughout the ages, you know, maybe you should Stop. up your game. 
<laughs> so, so, so let me ask. So the, back the to the substance. Back to the substance. Your your talk that you gave, Sex Panic and Celebrity Sexual Violence, that was at Carleton University in Ontario. How did that come about? Um, how did you approach first approach this topic, and uh, how were you asked to sort of embark on this journey that you sort of found yourself on? Yeah, I think I was less asked to embark on a journey than imposed on myself a journey, um, which is often the way. But, but I sort of got, you know, had been writing. I've written a lot um, and thought a lot over the years uh, about – sexual violence, um, normally in the context of war. And so, so my work is primarily or has been primarily focused on international criminal law, international humanitarian law and the law of war. Um, and so I've done a lot on, uh, gender and sexual violence in that framework. Um, and so, you know, being someone who writes on gender and sex as their primary, uh, focus is not something I had, I had done, uh, in, you know, outside of the war paradigm, but uh, increasingly feeling feeling the need to do so because of some of the um, some of the alignments and common threads that 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 flow through looking at gender and war and and uh, and just gender um, in general. And so, I think, though, for me personally, it was a series of discussions with friends and colleagues um, around the Louis C.K. revelations, um, and then the uh, invocation by a friend to actually. Uh, write the critical piece or a critical piece um, on the whatever we understanding is the Weinstein moment um, or the Me Too moment. And so, yeah, since then it's, I've just, um, it it, it took, uh, has been taken up with, it seems quite a bit of interest. Um, There's uh, of course a huge amount of interest in the topic itself, but anybody who's writing remotely critically on it um, sparks, uh, sparks a lot of, um, Contestation, but also I think uh, a strange sense of um, people people on the left finally finding or feeling like they they have a space to to share some common questions about um, the impact that the moment may or may not have. So we are um, a, approximately two months in mm. to this sort of moment, this uh, celebrity sexual violence, the hashtag Me Too, the Harvey Weinstein moment. Uh, one critical article that came out recently in the last couple of days refers to this as the HW era, I believe, which is Harvey Weinstein. So you can sort of divide uh, cultural and political and social commentary as like pre HW and post HW, right? Like it's what Tom um, Hanks as, suggested we do, I think. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 there's there's a lot to that. I mean, there's a way in which like the discourse, at least the discourse for sure has really been fundamentally altered in the course of this thing. And Louis C.K. was a, uh, a very interesting target, as was Harvey Weinstein, because both of these men are, uh, were previously uh, held up in a variety of ways as icons of the liberal and progressive uh, sort of, uh, I don't want to say left, but Louis perhaps. Weinstein was a sort of Clinton surrogate and fund, mm-hmm. fundraiser um, for sure. He was a, a, a kingmaker on the political liberal center in, in a lot of ways. And so for he, for him to be taken down in this fashion uh, was, was really traumatizing, I think, to a lot of liberals. And it struck a chord in, in, in a real way. Did you have that same experience with Louis C.K.? Were you a fan? I'm still a fan of Louis. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about um, the extent to which the, the artist's art can remain useful after the artist has been exposed here as a sort of um, creepy exhibitionist mm-hmm. character. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I think there was an initial sense of shock, but then anybody with any sort of, uh, you know, Freudian sensibility or, um, would have seen that it was there all, all along. And I think that that's kind of one of the interesting things here is that this, you know, the idea, and we should be clear about this from the beginning, right? The idea that, um, various, uh, kinds and, uh, of sexual violence and sexual assault and sexual harassment, um, happen to various degrees, um, all the time, uh, against women, men as well, but, um, but the movement, this movement is primarily focused on women, um, happen all the time. And, you know, we knew that. Uh, and so it's, you know, query why, uh, HW <laughs> seemed to, seem to set it off. I'm not really sure. I think people have said different theories about that. Um, you know, causality is notoriously difficult to prove in <laughs> social science anyway, but, um, but I think, you know, uh, it, you know, right, right in the way that 
with Louis, it was there all along. It was sort of there simmering in society all along as well. And so, um, yeah, what's new is the way in which we are talking about it, naming names, um, engaged in a, in a shaming exercise and certainly, um, in a widespread effort to take down in a, in a quite punitive fashion, these characters. So as you, as you lay out in your talk, this, um, this was spurred on this hashtag me too moment was spurred on. It's easy to forget this given the sort of like the, the way in which it's become a brand and a phenomenon unto itself, but its beginnings uh, can be located uh, approximately when Alyssa Milano celebrity actress uh, tweeted an invocation to all women who had been sexually assaulted or harassed, not by Weinstein, but in general to tweet uh, using the hashtag using uh, the hashtag me too. And in so 40 hour, uh, 48 hours uh, later, the hashtag had been tweeted over a million times and was even more popular on people's Facebook feeds. Um, so uh, you write, as of last week, some, a couple of weeks ago, approximately 52 men were the subject of allegations and many have lost their jobs, their career, their careers, and, and so on and so forth. And the big news item here is that on December 6th, Time Magazine announced that the Silence breakers, the hashtag Me Too individuals, people, uh, were named their persons of the year. So, what do you make of that? It's a pretty big, pretty big move. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, so firstly, I think it's it's interesting to point out that that um, this has been widely reported as well, but that the term actually Me Too is not created by Alyssa Milano. Um, so, okay. it was coined about ten years ago by Tanya Burke uh, to do with pervasiveness pervasiveness of abuse uh sort of in general but then was taken on by by milano so you know in terms of the the time person of the year allocation being given to the so-called silence breakers um you know there's a there's a way in which you know i don't I, I certainly a lot of good and potential emancipatory stuff has emanated from the idea that women apparently on a large scale are feeling somehow empowered now um, to be able to disclose or speak out in public about um, all sorts of violence and violations um, with a sexual nature, whether in the workplace or outside of the workplace um, they've experienced. And so, you know, I don't, I don't, I just want to be clear. I don't want to give the impression um, that I think this, this movement is, is sort of problematic in any sort of monolithic fashion. Um, there may or may not be, um, a lot of really cathartic and healing aspects um, to participation in the movement by individual women. And I'm saying the movement here uh, really to describe how it's been to say the thing involving, uh, mm. involving the hashtag uh, and, the, and the allegations of sexual violence against celebrities has been referred to as a movement. So I'm going to use that as shorthand, but, uh, but I'm, I'm not actually convinced that it is a movement. We can talk about that after, but um, you know, the idea here, and I'm just looking right now at the, the explanation um, given by Edward Felsenthal of the Times Editor-in-Chief, right, on why the Silence Breakers were named Times Person of the Year. And um, it's sort of an, in an interesting way in which there's a time wanted to, I think, really lend their support uh, to what they see as being something that can change sort of the course of how we think culturally, and I think this this idea of, of sexual culture is important, how we think culturally about sexual behavior in general um, mm. and with a lot of problematic problematic aspects. I mean, the idea, you know, Felsenthal says in the piece, to imagine Rosa Parks with a Twitter account is to wonder how much faster civil rights might have progressed. Um, so I think there's quite a bit of slippage going on there, right, uh, to yeah, equate... Yeah equate this so-called Me Too moment uh, or movement with the human or rather the civil rights project is, is really um, missing, missing a bit in the analysis. Right. There's a little critique drift, a little um, uh, we're playing fast and loose and we're, 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 uh, 
we're blending a lot of phenomena, right? And, and it's it's really a kind of an inchoate uh, sort of, um, as you say, quasi movement kind of movement, is it not? We'll talk about that a little bit. So I want to I want to lay out a little bit more of the history and, and sort of what where how we got here. And your piece, uh, the, the text, I should say, that you very graciously sent me of of one of your recent talk. You talk about how in 2011, under the Obama administration, the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights instructed American universities and college on how, colleges on how to reform their sexual assault policies. And of course, that was there the stick. There was a carrot and a stick here. The stick was that they threatened to end federal funding if, for these universities if they didn't comply with these orders. So the response was this sort of rewriting of what in the United States is known as Title IX uh, law and policies. So tell us a little bit about that and, and, and what that looked like and um, some, some of the kind of pitfalls of, of, that, of that process. Yeah, I mean, this... Careful about linking an analysis of the um, campus sexual assault issue, um, which has been really in the media now for about seven years in a, in a mm-hmm. quite significant way, not just in America, but um, sort of all over um, Western liberal democratic um, spaces, really. Um, but, you know, so the idea, and I think is the reason why we're concerned or why I am along with others um, are linking some of the, some of the problems we saw or the backlash, um, or the unintended consequences we saw with campus sexual assault policy reform are ones that could be easily reproduced in the current moment. But I think more importantly, from my perspective anyway, is to see the concern with the way in which we handle um, allegations of sexual assault on campus as being, in a sense, part of a much broader concern of with sex and law in, in various um, iterations over the past five to seven years. And so I want to situate, or what my, 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 my project right now is trying to do, is to try to situate in part the Me Too moment um, within a much wider spectrum of um, law reform or cultural reform um, projects. So these being sexual assault on campus, widespread campaigns within the U.S., but globally to end human trafficking, which usually stands in or is taken to stand in um, for ending prostitution or, or, or whatever it's referred to as sex work. Um also, the widening of um, the ambit for the listing of um, sexual, what's talk, who are talked about as sexual predators, right, on, um, on, these, on these lists, sex offender uh, lists, which is, again, you know, sort of a becoming kind of Western um, trend. All of these things together, and, and there are others we can talk about, including um, the current litigation in the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court right now about um, uh, the Baker <laughs> case and the and the gay marriage case. All of these all of these things are really of of a piece, I think. And so the the the, the Me Too moment is part of something else, a much broader concern with, I think, um, as Masha Gaysons called it, the New Yorker, right? The idea that we mm-hmm. we need to be policing sexual behavior so not just sexual misconduct but misconduct but sexual behavior as such and so the you know the camp the campus sexual assault stuff um basically the idea was that in the u.s anyway the encouragement was universities and colleges should reform their policies to become broadly speaking more uh, quote-unquote survivor centric now again i want to be clear that the campus sexual assault policy reform project, um, as you mentioned, which started under the Obama administration, was attempting um, to respond to, uh, you know, a really legitimate concern about underreporting of sexual assault um, on campuses, um, in part because there's really a conflict of interest, right, within large wealth- wealthy institutions to to not investigate um, for reputational um financial and other reasons, potentially well-founded allegations. So at the same time that there was a problem with underreporting um, and also the way and the manner in which these cases were resolved or not resolved at all, the, the idea to address that by going sort of taking a, a really drastic shift towards a, a survivor-centric approach has a lot of what we can call due process concerns. 
Um, right, right. So I, I want to dig into this a little bit. Yeah. It seems like the real underlying aspect, while the outcome is a more kind of survivor centric discourse or narrative mm-hmm. around justice and legal redress um, or lack thereof, mm-hmm. uh, it seems that the real root of this issue is the structural role that universities and college campuses are expected to play, which is this like in loco parentis uh, uh, so maybe tell t- what is the in loco parentis and, and how does that function? What are the obligations and the expectations? Because that seems to underlie this concern that universities have about accurately reporting incidences of sexual assault and rape on their campuses. Because what father and mother, I'm using the tree classic conservative nuclear family model here, which I recognize doesn't always exist, mm-hmm. wants to send their son or daughter uh, particularly daughter off to this college campus when there are just reports that are, you know, of, of just these rampant abuses that are going on there. Right. So the expectation is that then the university is failing in their role of in loco parentis. And, mm-hmm. and so tell us what, what is that and what's the expectation there? And because that really, I mean, if I might venture a, a very fast and loose, quick and dirty <laughs> hypothesis here, it seems like the in loco parentis role has Stemming from this context that you rightly raise, th- that in local parentis role has really been extended to the expectation of society at large in a lot of like in a really twisted way. Am I, am I, you, maybe you can sort of unpack that, agree or disagree. Right. Well, I mean, so in local parentis is a. I, I'm interested to know why why you're using specifically that language because it is so that's a legal term of art, right? Which. Yeah, yeah. It's not necessary. And I wouldn't want to give the impression that that's actually what's going on. So there's not, so universities are not um, actually um, in an in loco parentis situation from a legal perspective in the sense that they're not actually legally responsible um, for what would otherwise be parental responsibilities. I mean, it, <laughs> mostly, right, because they're dealing with adults, right? Um, well, don't but, let the don't let the facts get in the way of. But we, <laughs> because but, what's, but what's important? I, no. I say that funny, but because what what so what circulates in in this sort of like in this in the yeah. social sciences and humanities, yeah. not legal scholars, right? Legal scholars prize uh, accuracy above all, which is why perhaps I was not accurate. Well, one one's way. not always. We're using sure, it as a metaphor, I suppose. I suppose no, I understand. more accurately to say, yeah. So the the, the critique reads that the, there's a metaphor of this this metaphorical expectation of in loco parentis that is extended. I mean, another way of thinking uh, of it that might be helpful is is uh, is within the context of a fidu- fiduciary relationship or or right that creates fiduciary duties. So the idea in a fiduciary relationship is that um, because of the structural or power imbalance in play in in various sorts of relationships. Um, uh, the fiduciary basically um, has a set of uh, uber responsibilities or roles that they take on with respect to the beneficiary because they're better placed um, to do so basically um, for reasons of, as I said, structural inequality or expertise or this sort of thing. So, you know, a lawyer is in a fiduciary relationship with their client. Parents are in a fiduciary relationship with their children, right? So the parents are, mm-hmm. are it's meant to sort of act in the best interests of their kids. I mean, socially, it's true that the law in general <laughs> is is a is yeah, a yeah. is a is a technique of um, social organization, which is is uh, you know nominally, I suppose, de- designed to come out with um, policies that are meant to further a uh, substantive idea of what the good life is, right? Right, right. But yeah, but so in, in terms of general sense, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, this is this is important. So so you look, we look at university institutions, um, especially to the extent that they're benefiting from public funding, um, as part of of that apparatus. And and it might, you know, you can make the claim that I I suppose that um, perhaps a university uh, has a certain amount of fiduciary duties to to its students, um, but although you know, but in general has 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 a duty, a legal duty, and I think also a social and moral duty to um, create to not foster um, uh, a rape culture, uh, quote unquote, as as it gets talked about in the media, right? So to not foster an unsafe environment, to provide um, the basics of a, a safe um, and helpful learning environment for students, right? I mean, although. There is a question about, I, I think, a legitimate question about whether colleges and universities should be involved in the sexual assault game at all, right? 
So um, mm. it seems to me, given the history of just abject failure in terms of how these policies have been crafted and applied both before their reforms and after their reforms for very different reasons. One could make the argument that that actually all of this should just be handled by the justice system that's in place and not left to universities and colleges. Of course, the downside that's been noted um, with respect to that policy option is that you're, you're sort of giving over these issues to a justice system that is skewed towards prosecution as to as opposed to more remedial forms of of, of addressing these scenarios. Mm. Right, right. So the underlying co- context there that maybe we should get into if my audience is or isn't mm-hmm. familiar, many will be, but some may not be, is this Title IX, uh, mm-hmm. in, at least in the United, in the United States, mm-hmm. is kind of the model like par excellence. Uh, these are often operate as sort of these private kangaroo courts, I would say, which is a loaded term, but I think it's deserved in this particular instance. Uh, Laura Kipnis is a film studies professor at Northwestern University who has recently published a piece that's very, very controversial called Unwanted Advances. Uh, she found herself uh, the subject of a Title IX investigation. Uh, she was a- accused and, and found herself in a court. It's a, it's a quasi. It's, it is a kangaroo court because there's nobody in that in that in that setting that has any. Well, it's not a legal court. Training. Yeah. So so what is it? What kind of environment is it that the people step? I mean, into so it depends on about these. Yeah, I mean, I want to be clear that like this would, um, this would really depend on uh, the jurisdiction that you're in on on uh, the university or college in question on the way that they've drafted their policies. Right? Not not all policies. Mm-hmm. Are the same. Some are much, um, much worse than others. But there really is like a spectrum of uh, ways in which these things are dealt with. But um, yeah, it's true that one could find oneself easily uh, in a sort of Inquisition-style environment um, where one isn't permitted to retain counsel and have them present, for example. Although that again, all of this depends on the on the specific scenario. Um, these are basically uh, committees uh, set up by the university to to judge disputes, right? They can operate on different standards of proof. In general, the standard of proof is not going to be a criminal court, a criminal court sorry, standard, which is beyond reasonable doubt. It can often be on a balance of probabilities, which is a 50% plus one chance that, um, that the conduct, alleged conduct took place. And then there are also a really, uh, uh, you know, a, a broad range of really a broad range of due process concerns that that range from the definitions of the impugned acts, so the definition of sexual assault or sexual harassment, for example, um, right, which right. have become really broad, so uh, excessively broad. It's now the case often, sometimes, that. Um, that using uh, language that t- t- tends to target uh, another person based um, on gender could be considered sexual violence. Um, there is a general move away from talking about sexual assault to talking about sexual violence as such. And then that becomes a huge umbrella crime that can be filled with all sorts of, be- of behavior ranging from, as I said, saying something um, saying something that is taken as, as offensive um, or discriminatory in class. And so there's an ongoing, uh, very hot case based, based on that um, in Canada at the moment. Um, or, or to full on, to full on sexual assault or what's known in the United States as rape, right? Sometimes you don't even have the right to confront your accuser face to face. Sometimes all of this can happen, uh, based on written submissions, so there are a number of issues, right? But in, in general, I think the the due process um, concerns are are valid, um, and they you know they really ask broad questions about how we want to deal with these questions in society. And I think that giving these kangaroo courts, as you call them, is problematic. But also giving all of this over to the general criminal justice system is problematic. Um, so there's certainly not a clear answer. Right, right. There's a there's a very difficult uh, situation with with contradictions on on either side. I want to be clear about that, right? Like, I think you know we have to embrace the complexity and understand it, and accept it, and acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. Um, one of the things I think that I want to talk about next that's very problematic is the way that the left talks about uh, various the legal uh, you know frameworks 
or the courts themselves in, in terms of like how enlightened they are or how, how capable they are in dealing, uh, legally speaking, with matters of sexual harassment and sexual assault. And you have a very interesting take on that, uh, one that's very challenging because I think the knee-jerk reaction that I'm exposed to is that the courts are utterly um, incapable of handling sexual assault and sexual violence and sexual harassment and, dis- and discrimination. Therefore, this kind of hashtag me to quasi vigilante justice that's being meted out is necessary because the courts are uh, uh, incapable of handling this. Uh, what's your take on that, on that uh, dominant, I think, uh, narrative that, that circulates in some circles of the left? Yeah, well, I think it's true to say, right, that um, the courts would not be very well equipped or ideally placed at all to deal with some of these allegations. And so if you look, for example, we mentioned Louis C.K. earlier, if you look at um, some of the allegations against Louis C.K., it's 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 very far from clear um, uh, that, you know, what he was doing was in, was in any way criminal. Um, and I should just, just point out as well, right, that there's a difference between um, – illegal and criminal behavior. Um, and I think part of, part of the, um, problem with the court system as such could, it could, could, could lie in objections to the criminal justice system, but could also lie, um, in objections to how, uh, the civil law of sexual harassment gets played out. Right. So I think it's plausible that there may have been a sexual harassment type claim, um, against somebody like Louis CK, but very difficult to say that um, a criminal charge could have ensued. Um, but it is true that in the discourse today, we're not talking much about um, the civil law of sexual harassment um, in the workplace at all. We're playing, we're really focusing on the, on a punitive response, which somehow seems, I think you're right to, 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 to trade on the idea that the courts are not doing enough to hear um, female victims of sexual violence. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I think that's why that, I think there's a sense in which, for example, time calling their person of the year, the silence breakers, you know, tells us something about uh, how we think um, women's voices, when I say we, I mean, in the discourse, um, haven't been sufficiently heard. And that includes in the court system. And I think the idea is that courts are judges rather are sort of unlikely to believe women somehow um, women complainants, uh, of sexual violence claims, um, or are, are still participating in the old sort of rape or a gender-based fantasies, uh, sorry, still buying into the old mythologies around sexual violence, right? In which mm-hmm. certain sorts of women, um, are more likely to suffer it, in which prior sexual conduct is considered relevant um, with respect to the, a, a, a current complainant's likelihood to have consented or not to a particular encounter. But I think it's important to point out that, you know, a lot of law reform has happened over the last 30 to 40 years with respect both to civil sexual harassment law and also the criminal law of sexual violence. And in general, I mean, of course, with some exceptions, also depending on which jurisdiction one is in, um, in particular in the United States, there are concerns about uh, elected prosecutors and this sort of thing. But in general, uh, in general, the courts do a pretty good job on the terms of the legal system that we have in place. Yeah, One could have a discussion about whether we think uh, we like the general structure of the legal system, but the way it's set up now, it's an adversarial system that relies on a beyond a reasonable doubt standard of proof. And in sexual violence cases, they generally... Um, or often tend to be he said, she said cases, which are notoriously difficult to prove. And so, you know, if we want to continue with the justice system we have, where we are uncomfortable with prosecuting uh, innocent people, then we need to be uh, content with the idea that it's not necessarily uh, doing everything we want when it comes to uh, policing, quite literally, sex and society, right? But giving it up would also have, have consequences. Right. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about the element of due. Pro- mm-hmm. And I just want to backtrack. I mean, I think yeah, we're, sure. we're both in agreement here. Like there are a lot of just procedural barriers to having uh, a, a, an alleged assault sort of adjudicated and, and sort of handled. I mean, the, the most obvious one is, well, you, you know, the, your first point of contact oftentimes are, are like local police departments. And those are not nice places for anyone to go to uh, to report certain types of crime. 
you know, uh, particularly if you are who you are, uh, your class identity position can, can determine like how seriously you are taken and, and that type of thing. Um, and, and so I just want to, I just want to put that out there. Like, I mean, at least that's my perspective, agree or disagree. I, I don't want folks to think that we are, uh, you know, overlooking that or glossing over those kind of harsh realities um, of, of of dealing with these things inside the system. And, 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 and so Although that's, that's not that's a concerned. procedural barrier, I should, you should be clear, right? That's that's just a um, sort of social context barrier. There you go again with the, the legal precision. Damn it. <laughs> I should have known better than to bring a legal scholar on the Dead Punnett Society. Uh, but no, that, that's so important. No, it is. It is. So tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. The, the distinction between like social barriers versus like actual like legal procedural. Uh, well, I mean, so it's, and I was just saying that because there is often we, we will, we've been seeing a lot of um, law reform uh, calls, right? So the idea mm-hmm. that there's, um, mm-hmm. we need to somehow strengthen or tighten up loopholes in the law. This is very common. Um, and in general, the loophole sort of argument um, is, the, it would, is a, is a, is a argumentative trope advanced by the, by the right, right. <laughs> to say that, you know, um, so it's interesting that we see that now on the so-called left, the idea that if we tighten up laws, you know, really get sort of law and order, then we're somehow going to um, change uh, what's going on. But the idea that it might be traumatic or people might be to, to, to advance a, a claim in court or that, um, you know, based on all sorts of, of, of social um, status considerations, one might be dissuaded from wanting to get involved in the legal process. I mean, those are all just, you know, uh, sort of social cultural barriers and not actually um, a procedural barrier. That's so important. Thanks for clarifying. Well, it's got nothing to do with the actual law. There's a reason why uh, I brought uh, brought you on, Uh, both just you individually and uh, as a legal scholar. I think it's really important to bring this level of precision and clarity. As I say, other you know, in other other contexts and other episodes, like you know, if I have a mantra, it's that we should never sacrifice analytic precision for political expediency. And you know, one of the political uh, expedient. Uh, sort of uh, pursuits that are, are sort of uh, a big hot topic right now is like this notion of due process. Like what does due process represent and how do we pursue it? Uh, there was a Twitter debate recently. Uh, the the discourse on, on the Twitters and, and these sort of like gross places that we find ourselves in sometimes uh, <laughs> is one that, that, that sort of tries to paint the notion of due process as like um, inherently problematic, inherently patriarchal Hmm. and that, that, that official legally sanctioned due process somehow minimizes uh, the actual due process of these women who are pursuing these uh, kind of like um, these charges in the court of public opinion, for example, that we shouldn't, that appeals to due process are, are just ways of silencing people. Uh, well, what's your, what's yeah. your take on that? And, and what is due process as, as a legal scholar? I mean, I could look, I kind of under, I, I can understand again, this is, this is the sort of argument that the right tends to advance and has advanced in this context. Right. So the idea that, uh, Oh, there's no due process and therefore we're not strictly adhering to the law in some kind of positivist sense. Um, and therefore we're not, you know, living up to the promises of, you know, in the U S of the constitution or whatever. Um, you know, so yes, obviously due, due process is a constitutionally protected right, um, sort of in every liberal democratic uh, legal system, uh, which means that you shouldn't, <laughs> you should basically just be treated with basic fairness in the legal system. I mean, that's, it's due process just means it's, it's kind of shorthand for, um, for fairness, right? Um, and so in other words, you shouldn't be subjected to a kangaroo court was a term that you used a moment ago. Um, or a show trial, or or in other words, an investigation into a scenario that isn't really an investigation because it's by inherently biased by all the, by an, a, a range of considerations. You know, so I think and one could have a meta a meta level, and I think the left should does and should have a meta level discussion um, about the ways in which. Uh, the legal system in general in the U.S. or the West fails uh, to live up to many of the promises that we on the left might have for it. And those that those failures, those macro level systemic 
failures. In other ways, in other words, I'm sorry, the way in which, uh, for example, the criminal justice system can be looked at today as a as a modern day Jim Crow institutional setup, right? I think there's there's obviously a lot of truth to that, right? So those sorts of left claims about a sort of a lack of structural due process have make sense. On the other hand, um, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, it, that um, committed left thinkers should be very concerned about fairness and that if we have all consented, right, of course, this trades on the um, uh, standard, you know, political theory based explanations for why, why we allow government and the legal system to work out the way it does. But once we've accepted Mm -hmm. that we are in a system that, for example, requires an accused or rather gives the accused the right to confront his accuser, for example, makes the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So, so we're minimizing the chances of convicting a, a person who's not guilty. All of these things, you know, we're not we are committed to those um, because they are bedrocks of the system that we're in. Now, if you want to to pull an anarchist move and say that we need to like rip it all down and start again, that's fine. You can, one one can do that, but it, to the extent you know, my objection to to to, to things um, arguments such as those found in that Twitter thread were basically like: once you're in the system, you either have to accept uh, to work within it, sort of according to its rules, for lack of a better word, or actually demand a totally different system. And I'm very at home, oftentimes with with the the, the demand for a different system. And I think we need to keep those two. Um, considerations just in, in clearly in mind when when we say things like uh, I'm not interested in due process as the courts understand it because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you then you'd actually be demanding a revolution right so a lot of people have right. been call been calling the Me Too movement revolutionary and it's curious to me in what sense they think it's revolutionary if it requires something like a full scale reevaluation of the criminal justice project I would be all for that but I don't think that's what's going on. <laughs> Because it's, it strikes me because they're not making that explicit distinction that you just made uh, by saying like – because in essence what they're saying on Twitter is like, well, we don't actually think this notion of, of sort of like legally institutionally accepted due process is just and here's why we want a different system and here's how we're going to go about doing it. They just sort of pull this kind of like what I call like this hyper idealist maximalist approach where they just pretend like the real existing institutions in, in society don't exist. And that their version of justice is the only one, right? It's just this like really kind of like uh, sophomoric, like uh, a friend of mine, a future guest, Lee Phillips, calls this the fuck you dad wing of the left. (laughs) Yeah, I mean – It's this childish move whereby we pretend like the dominant dominant institutions in society don't exist and our version of justice is the only one. And it leaves those those systems untouched. And and, and then it puts – it makes the elites the ultimate arbiters of the direction in which which, like the system will change as a result of the hashtag MeToo movement. Because we're not making explicit demands about what kind of system no, exactly. we want. Yeah. We're just sort of like appealing to these vague notions of justice. But I think it's even it. worse than that because it explicitly endorses vigilante justice. In other words, justice without right. due process. So right, right. which isn't justice. Because so. the claim is that's because the claim is that that is actually more just mm-hmm. than the existing institutional forms mm-hmm. of justice. So mm-hmm. that takes us to the notion of sex panic. So sex mm-hmm. panic is in your talk, it is a problematic, to put it lightly, uh, phrase, uh, uh, designation uh, in the commentariat, as you might call them. This has been an explosion of think pieces and articles and hot takes on uh, this particular phenomenon, which I hope we're not adding to it. I hope we're offering more clarity because uh, some of these pieces offer uh, you know, more, uh, more heat than light, you might say. <laughs> Uh, to put it light, lightly, um, some of them are good. Masha Gason is fantastic. I think everyone should go out and read as much Masha Gason as they can. No, uh, I couldn't agree. Providing with a lot of light and clarity on the topic, but Absolutely. the ones who are a little bit more less helpful have a very flat notion, flattened notion of sex panic, and they 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 attack anyone who would designate this particular phenomenon as in any way being affiliated with a sex panic Mm -hmm. as minimizing the experiences of these women who have been, um, you know, uh, unjustly 
attacked or, or whatever, you know, uh, pursued mm-hmm. in a variety of ways. I mean, there's tens of thousands of, uh, you know, hashtag me too moments. How can we generalize? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have a very specific understanding of sex panic. So what is a sex panic and how does it function? Well, I mean, I think so. Sex panic is not complicated. It's a very simple notion um, that it's a widespread social disruption, right? Ba- based on disagreements, policy and otherwise, that are sex related. Uh, and it's just a way of reframing the idea of moral panic, which is developed in the early 80s, by acknowledging the centrality of sex, gender, and sexuality to what would otherwise just be understood as a, as a moral panic, right? And so I think Carol Vance was actually the one who coined the term sex panic in the 80s. Um, and it's Kiri Noah, who was a, who's a really sort of a radical thinker um, on the left in terms of, of sex and gender studies. And so it's really interesting now to see the way in which the language of sex panic has been taken up by the right uh, <laughs> as, as a way of um, garnering resistance to the Me Too movement, right? And at the same time, the way in which the, you know, the um, protagonists of the movement itself, the moment they see the word, uh, the allegation, uh, <laughs> or the appellation uh, of sex, sex panic, they, they get very upset and will associate it with having come from the right without um, engaging in an actual uh, discussion of, of what this means as a social phenomenon. And I think so the idea, so I'm just going to read a short quote from Janice Irvine's uh, article called Emotional Scripts of Sex Panics. And so mm-hmm. she describes in a really great way, the way in which these phenomenon play out. She says, first, a group person or issue emerges to become defined as a social threat. So this is obviously Harvey <laughs> can stand in for that. Media representations then stylize this alleged threat in a simplistic and stereotypical way, way fueling intense public concern. Um, I think we've seen, you know, quite clearly how the media is talking about this in the in in uh, in as you said a quite flattening way, right? So reducing and compiling every allegation of some kind of of sexual. Um, opportunism or misconduct um, grouping all that all of that together under under the rubric of sexual violence you know so Irvine goes on to say next moral entrepreneurs of various types devise coping mechanisms and solutions and I think what we you know that's really helpful way to understand the me too movement is as a sort of social on a on a social level a a coping mechanism um, for dealing with a perceived widespread threat of sexual violence in the workplace but also in general Irvine continues to say the perceived threat eventually diminishes and the panic recedes. The group or condition may have vanished or simply dropped from public interest. The panic may simply be forgotten or it may generate political changes. And most importantly here, I think, uh, is when she says repressive legislation and policies are common legacies of moral panics, rendering them mechanisms of social control against their folk double targets. And so that's it's really the last mm-hmm. part there that I think my work is focusing on, you know, really trying to make concrete what the costs, the benefits as well, but mostly what the political costs are of articulating what's going on in terms in terms of, or rather understanding what the social costs of the sex panic are. Um, and so calling, calling this phenomenon a sex panic uh, is simply a way of, of exercising, you know, some sort of analytical uh, scholarly rigor on top of the social phenomenon. Right. So the key there is the distinction between like the discourse of the way that we sort of people are talking about this uh, versus kind of like the phenomenon, the social phenomenon itself, like the raw mm. kind of like happening, the, the, the messy sort of contradictory sort of experience of of social existence. And of course, what we do as as humans, as thinkers, as, you know, scholars, as leftists, as political beings political animals we project certain kinds of analytic and conceptual frameworks onto this raw phenomenon and so what you're what you seem to be suggesting is a sex panic is a type of discourse or type of conceptual framework Mm -hmm. to understand this which means that it's it's historical and it's contingent which means it's not the only way to understand this and so so given that, like there, there's a set of, of, of drawbacks, right, that, that, that a sex panic can have. And I think 
Um, a good friend of the show and mentor of mine, Roger Lancaster. Uh, he's a he's a professor of cultural studies at George Mason University in the U.S. He uh, he's sort of one of the main scholars on sex panics in some senses. He's published on it, and uh, he has a a really pithy formulation I like a lot. And it's kind of like I, the way I distill it is like the meaning of a panic is the purge. Yeah. That's the meaning, right? Because I mean, it's, it's, it's the culmination. It's, it's, it's the reason it's, it's the ultimate kind of like meaning. It's the way to make sense of it. And, and, and so in that sense, calling this a sex panic is a way to diagnose the inadequacies of, of where this is bound to go. Like the trajectories of this, you were bound to see a mass purge of these wrongdoers, these people who have been accused and uh, we're unlikely, I think, in a sense, to see real systemic change that will uh, address the inequities uh, faced by women and all types of people in society. And so we can talk a little bit more about the sex panic, but really what the panic aspect points to is a certain kind of neoliberal politics, a certain kind of neoliberal feminism. And I think I want to wrap this A-side up with your really fascinating discussion of neoliberal feminism uh, that you pursue in the uh, you know second part of your talk, so so lay that out for us if you don't mind. Thanks, Adam. My my invocation of of the sex panic, um, you know, doesn't work on its own as you pointed out, right? So the 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 way in which I, I, I'm trying to understand what's going on involves um, elements of looking at this phenomenon as a sex panic, but also trying to understand. Um, the register in which some of the negative consequences um, of the panic will be in the end, right? So you mentioned the the unlikelihood uh, that this is going to lead, the Me Too movement, in other words, is going to lead to sort of actual reform um, when it comes to the way in which w- women are subjected on a daily basis to all sorts of unwanted sexual um, sexual behavior, What's more likely, I think there is going to be social change um, and policy change too likely. But, I, but I'm concerned, in other words, with the way in which the likely, these changes are probably going to be conservative in nature, right? Um, and when I say that, I mean the, the sexual politics of the social change seems to me to be going in a very, a very conservative direction. And that's why I think it's important. You know, a lot of, a lot of feminists have been writing against the terminology of the sex panic, um, because they don't like emphasizing the sexual nature uh, of what's going on, right? They're they're trying to say, look, sexual harassment, sexual violence, um, this is the old story. You know, sexual harassment, sexual violence is about power, not sex. And that we're, you know, to call it a sex panic uh, is to do a disservice to the people participating in the, in the panic itself. But I have to say... Um, you know, that the as concerned as the sexual nature of this gives rise uh, in part to the panic, but also uh, I'm concerned, in other words, with the way in which reading out the sexual nature um, of the wrongdoing in these cases really flattens um, our understanding of the social phenomenon, what's going on, mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. leaves something out when it comes to how we understand sex and sexuality today. And so you know, what's really interesting is the way in which that flattening out, I think, has a neoliberal um, taint to it, basically. So there's something about the way in which conservative sexual politics really map on to what has been understood increasingly over the last couple of years by um, feminists as the creation of a neoliberal feminist subjectivity. So that's drawing, in other words, um, on the on the work of Catherine Rottenberg to a large extent. So she's been working on um, the creation of this, uh, as I said, neoliberal feminist subjectivity. And there are two sort of key parts to the development of that of that subjectivity. There's sort of the um, atomization, what she calls the atomization. Um, and the individualization of female uh, lived experience um, to the extent that it gets deployed uh, through feminist projects. So she's concerned about the way in which the the claim today is that uh, women need to really turn inwards and give a great deal of weight to their affective state um, in terms of figuring out their feminist 
place in the world. And so she's looking at um, the notorious uh, lean in text by Sheryl Sandberg, right? <laughs> that, that punching bag that it, it brings that that Sheryl Sandberg brings people together across many ideological divides because we all just sort of unite in despising and loathing her. Yeah, and so, <laughs> so, so what is Rottenberg's so what is Rottenberg's take on that? So question? she's got this great take where she's saying, "Look, there's so so the way she's saying lean in is a sort of a manifesto for neoliberal feminism, right?" Um, <laughs> Which is not, it's, it's, this makes total sense. And so she says, and I'm, I'm quoting from Rottenberg's piece now, um, when she's describing this neoliberal feminist subject. Uh, so this subject, according to Rottenberg, um, quote, is one who willingly and forcibly acknowledges continued gender inequality, but whose feminism is so individuated that it's been completely unmoored from any notion of social inequality and consequently cannot offer any sustained analytic of the structures of male dominance, power, or privilege. And so the move there is not to deny in any way that we have very strong and embedded structures of male dominance, power, and privilege, right? And that it is these structures in the context of Me Too, um, from my perspective, that clearly have allowed what is uh, widespread sexual creepiness to go on uh, and to go on for so long um, and to be resistant to a social reckoning. But the social reckoning that Sandberg and others in this neoliberal feminist moment that are looking for is this individuated, atomized, subjective, affective thing. So it's a very odd way, right, in which the, the idea of acting in a feminist way in society today start, sort of starts with the self, but also ends with the self. And so I'm very concerned about what it means to participate in Me Too. It seems to me, um, by and large, it's uh, the contribution of uh, many thousands of individual tweets uh, recounting um, a variety of women's lived experience with sexual violence. And that's that may be one way in which they, they feel that their voices are being heard. It may be a way which, in fact, their voices are actually being heard. Um, but to the extent that that's the movement we're talking about, it doesn't do anything in Rottenberg's language, right, to mm. to offer a sustained analytic of these oppressive structures um, or to do anything uh, for, you know, uh, to facilitate any kind of collective social action against um, inequality and discrimination, you know. So the second part of uh, Rottenberg's construction of this neoliberal subject focuses on the way in which this internalization of the feminist revolution, right, going back to to Sandberg's lean in, leads women to, to need to have this individuated notion of ambition. But that ambition is in lockstep with the creation of some kind of ideal homework balance, right? And so the idea there is that women who are successful and instantiating in their individual lives sort of the feminist project of ambition, of breaking the glass ceilings, of being, you know, coming somehow equal with men is actually reliant on a strangely conservative notion um, of sex and and the households, right? And sort of is, is really in line with um, this idea that uh, sex takes place in a traditional marriage partnership type situation that um, facilitates a happy work family balance. And that's, that's drawing again on, on, on Sandberg's piece. And so in the context of trafficking, for example, which has been another, as I said, um, a quote sort of prefiguring uh, project that's totally in line with the Me Too movement. Um, Elizabeth Bernstein has also argued that feminists nowadays are looking to, quote, symbolically enhance their own power in domestic sphere heterosexual relationships um, as part of a shared commitment to relational as opposed to recreational sexual ethics. And that 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 ethic or that sexual culture, that neoliberal conservative um, sexual culture, among other things, includes uh, what she refers to as the domestication of the heterosexual man. And so I'm really interested in the ways in which the way we, th- we think about sexual culture can be positive influence um, in quite conservative directions. Um, 
because of the Me Too, Too moment. And that, that's probably, to my mind, it's one of the, the most significant and under-articulated concerns. This is good. This is good. So we're, we've come full circle. We've started by laying out the argument. We've talked about exactly the precise meaning of a sex panic, why it's important, and why it actually is Maybe I was going to say why it is progressive. Maybe why it is the progressive take on this because this the this the the kind of discourse that circulates right now in the mainstream and the main in the left I would even say is 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 has some really disturbing connotations and implicit assumptions as you just laid out. Not only are they sort of like neoliberal in their trajectory and they produce this kind of neoliberal feminist subject. Uh, which therefore uh, makes kind of like a more thoroughgoing systemic uh, transformation impossible or uh, or, or less, less uh, uh, likely, you might say. It doesn't ever get at the inequities, the underlying uh, inequities in terms of power and privilege and wealth, uh, most explicitly wealth. I mean, mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein was a multi-billionaire. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louis C.K. Uh, was in charge of various, you know, productions, TV and film production enterprises. I mean, these are... These are products of, of 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 wealth, and we haven't even talked about it. I know you'd, you'd you'd love to do this. We haven't even mentioned the the plight of say you know domestic workers or housekeepers or whomever mm-hmm. else who's who who gets a li- they get a kind of like a little bit of a mention, which I thought was nice. Time magazine gave gave like the housekeeper. They attempted little, little, to, yeah. They they tried right. They're trying to to transcend class and privilege that way and, and it, because let's be honest i mean who are really the people who are most marginal most marginalized in society and most disempowered and, and unable to seek redress uh for uh you know yeah, and, and also they're just more vulnerable they're easier targets well i think there's something about the movement that itself seeks to some somehow transcend these divisions as though they didn't exist um and what's important mm-hmm. again is the sexual component as opposed to um, you know, the power component, right? If we were really concerned with, with employment equity um, and, and work conditions, um, we wouldn't be talking about, about sex at all. So it just proves the, brings home the point to me that actually the whole point of this is, is really about policing sexual culture. We'd be talking about unions. We'd be talking about Maybe. we need more robust unions and union recognition. Okay, so if the, if the, if the, if the maids at the Hilton are getting harassed at, in, in, uh, at, at rates of like 80 to 90% reported mm-hmm. that we know of, yeah. right? Well, then why, why don't they have, you know, union structures wherein they can be protected, their jobs can be preserved, and they can pursue grievances against their employers for not following through and, and getting any kind of, you know, justice or redress on these cases, you know? That's true. Although I do, I should point out that I think it's, it's, it's not the case that, um, the existence of unions where the, you know, where the, where they do function has necessarily historically led to protection against sexual violence or sexual harassment. Very true. Very true. The, the leadership in SE, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. I have a cautious support of existing business unions. They're, they're, they're mostly shitty. Let's be honest. <laughs> the, the, the leading, the existing leadership of SEIU, uh, leading, uh, service employees, Union here in the United States, uh, they have been ousted over uh, allegations of sexual misconduct. Uh, they appear to be big, big old creeps. I mean, they do. Um, so yeah, it's it, there's there's no safe space here in terms of like creepy men who are like pulling Weinstein style uh, uh, creepiness or Matt Lauer style creepiness with like the secret lock under his desk. Right. Like who needs to be able to who let me ask you. I mean, we've been really we've been beating around the bush here with some of these people, but let's just get it out. Who the fuck needs a lock under their desk (laughs) to lock the door of your office, you know, to to trap someone in there like what a scumbag. Anyway, anyway, we're doing the thing that we said you're doing. You're doing you're totally doing the thing. I'm doing the thing. I just had to get that out there. Okay. So good stuff. Good stuff. I'm enjoying this. Thanks so much for coming on uh, the A-side to talk with me about some of these phenomenon and laying out the, the legal precision and the arguments uh, that, you know, that the left should be making regarding uh, the sex panic and, and, and sexual harassment and discrimination and so on and so forth. Everybody should stay tuned to the B-side. We're going to get down into uh, the, the granular level when it comes to to addressing the question of like what kind of sex politics and and, and interpersonal relationships should the left fight for Mm -hmm. to avoid some of the pitfalls that we've laid out here. So Heidi, thanks so much for joining me on the Dead Pundit Society. Uh, Really enjoyed this. 
Wonderful. Look forward to the B-side. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this episode. Hope you enjoyed my interview with Heidi. A lot of really interesting nuance came out of that discussion. So next up, you're not going to want to miss the B-side to this conversation. It's going to be released in a few days' time for all of my patrons. If you're not a patron, head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at $5 a month or more. Heidi and I are going to be talking about developing a principled socialist position on sex and agency. We're going to talk about the legal structure and what socialists should think about it. And she's a lawyer, people. She knows her stuff. We're not just pontificating here. She slaps me around a little bit, uh, pun intended, uh, when it comes to my shoddy understanding of the legal system and uh, legal theory. So, hey, you're not going to want to miss that. The dead pundits are going to get slapped around, folks. Tune in. Patreon.com slash dead pundits. All right. A lot of good stuff coming up next week. I've got Lee Phillips. We're going to be talking about his book on austerity, ecology, and collapse porn addicts. A lot of really interesting stuff there about how to develop a principled social position on the ecological crisis. You notice a theme here on Dead Pundit Society. We're all about principled uh, socialist positions. Funny that, huh? All right. Lots of good stuff coming your way. Enjoy the B-side in a few days' time, and we'll see you again next week. Same time, same place. Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother...